What does it mean to create intergenerational solutions? How does awe, that feeling of wonder, play a role in modern day activism? These are a couple of the questions that our guests tackle in this episode of the Climate Bridges podcast. I'm Dr. Ashley Lovell, and I'm thrilled to bring you this episode, which unpacks how different generations of activists can work together to achieve climate justice. This conversation features Maggie Fox, the principal at Maggie Fox Strategies and co-founder of the Global Biodiversity Narrative Project, and Nicole Hensel, the executive director of New Era Colorado, whose mission is to mobilize and empower young people to shape our democracy and advance progressive change. These two powerhouses spoke over Zoom in mid-October during heightening momentum leading into the November election. Both women have worked in politics, voter mobilization, and policy for many years, and they had a lot to say about our current moment. I'm Nicole. I am the executive director at New Era Colorado. A bit about me is that, you know, for as long as I can remember, I have been driven by social justice. My mom tells me that that's how I came out the womb. I think it had a lot to do with the way that she raised me. She was an activist herself, always has been. But, you know, it was this quest for justice in the world that naturally drew me to the field of education and youth empowerment because I know that the movement for a better world starts with our young people. And so I spent most of my career working in education as a teacher. I worked for Denver Public Schools. I worked at a large youth empowerment nonprofit. If anything, school should be a place where people learn to care about one another and we form communities that are interconnected and interdependent. And how do we design school to do that? And then realized that a lot of the challenges that I was trying to solve in the schooling system were actually symptoms of much larger societal problems and questions around competition and narrow success metrics and, you know, diversity and equity and inclusion. And that it was actually much bigger than the schooling system. It actually was our entire society. And so that is why I left education and decided to work towards building youth power in our democracy and giving young people a seat at the table. It's a wonderful story. We're not so different, even though we're generationally separate. I came into my sense of purpose, if you will, in college around the Vietnam War. That defined me as an adult and kept me on the path of activism even though that's not in my family roots in that way. My parents were very involved in the community, but I don't think they would have defined themselves as activists, whereas I've pretty much defined myself that way since I was about 19. But our journeys have led us to somewhat the same place. My career is long. I was with the Sierra Club for almost 20 years, and I went through a bunch of positions, ultimately the deputy executive director. I ran America Votes for two and a half years, and I only left because my husband was running for office and he would have been a, a conflict in law, not just a conflict in, in people's perceptions. And then the third uh, big position was Al Gore asked me after Barack won if I would run his organization and co-lead national campaign to pass a climate bill, which I did. It was incredible. And I stayed when that died based on health care and a bunch of other politics because I felt like leaving would have been a sinking ship. You know, at that moment, Copenhagen had happened. The whole world was looking to the United States to pass the climate bill. It didn't happen. And it was just this, the biggest balloon in the world deflated and no one knew what to do. And in those years, I kept seeing and learning things which somewhat equated to you, which is that our movements 
across the whole progressive agenda, not just in the climate environment space or social justice more broadly, is that we've misunderstood for way too long that change doesn't actually happen in the world of policy and politics. It happens in culture. And the delivery mechanism for the change occurs inside of policy and politics. So we have run political campaigns and policy campaigns that reach very few people. There is real division between us because we don't actually do the work and focus our campaigns on the cultural spaces where it becomes part of conversation in a way that, you, that is not about making a decision about who to vote for today or what policy to say yes or no to, but like, it's in my life. It's all around me. And I'm, gonna, I'm figuring out what I think about all this. And I have to talk to people because some of it makes this clear and some of it isn't. That is where I think we must come together. And generations before you have really missed, missed that piece. And I ran some wonderfully successful and not successful campaigns in the worlds of policy and politics. And I loved doing it. And at the time I was doing it, I had no idea they were a bust, that they were very limited in time and duration. And our winning was only very narrow, even if it looked good at the time, because we hadn't actually moved the conversation in any sense. We'd scored a win, but we hadn't changed the way people were feeling about it. And we hadn't affinity, which is what's deeply needed right now, is a sense of uh, when we're talking about things that you and I care about, whether it's climate justice, social justice more broadly, or systemic racism, or particular environmental goals around climate and biodiversity, we haven't worked to understand that people don't travel with us until they feel like I'm in. This is about me. I'm in, I feel affinity. I feel it like deep inside of me. Then all the rocky waters don't, people don't leave because they found a, a really profound connection like you have and I have. This has been my identity and not my work. It's been my work, but it's more than that. And that identity is what's necessary to forge the solutions that we need now particularly. I think it's always been the case, but really now a lot. Yeah, yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. I think like one of the reasons why I decided to leave the world of education and move into politics is not because I have been a political operative my whole life. Um, we have folks on our staff who have been like running campaigns since they were in kindergarten. And I love that. And it wasn't me. It's not the way I got to this work. But the reason why I got to this work was because I was in grad school when the 2016 election happened. I was at Stanford studying, getting my master's in public policy, my master's in education leadership, was thinking about how do we design a schooling system so that it empowers young people and the adults within the system. And 2016 happened and all of the questions that I was asking myself about how do we design school so that we can help foster the kinds of beliefs and values and norms that we think it takes to live a good life? All of a sudden, like everything outside of school was exposed. And I was asking all these questions about like, what is our social contract to one another? Like, what's our duty to take care of one another? And where do you learn that? And how do you learn that? And who influences that? And what is the role of government? And so I started, I really took a left turn on my course of studies and started taking 
political philosophy classes and digging into, you know, some of our like founding documents and just realize that democracy is the best system we know of as a way to address collective challenges, not only because the policymaking element of it is important, but similar to what you said, there's also this shifting norms and values, right? There's this collective conversation that we have with one another about the kind of world we want to live in and how we think we get to that world. And I think that in the past few decades, we've lost a lot of our spaces where we used to come together and have those conversations. Like school is actually one of the only places we have as a major socializing institution anymore. It's the only place where we actually come together and set a vision for the kind of world we want to live in. We're missing that with the lack of, which is how hyper individualist we've gotten. And um it's something that we're seeing is is causing a lot of fractures because we're not actually having conversations with each other about the kind of world we want to live in um, and even attempting to find common ground around what that is. And I see that like politics and democracy at its best could be a system in which we do that. And especially for young people who are forming their political identities at a time when it's so malleable, like I want New Era to be a place where we allow them to explore those big questions and understand like, okay, what kind of world do I want to live in and how do I think we get there and what's my role in it? And who, yeah, and and really creating a space for them to know that they can find a place and it's really incumbent upon them to search and not just drift into something because there's a lot of choices. It doesn't feel that way. I think to a lot of young people, they right now in particular, I think another one of the, the jobs that you and I would agree on is, well, we need a new story. The story now is a loss, extreme, unparalleled loss, ununderstandable loss. And in the case of the threats that we're facing, it's like finding a place to inhabit that world together because we aren't going to come up with these solutions. We're just going to battle each other bitterly over each little thing instead of seeing that it's a common problem, we're going to fight over what we do about it. But we haven't even gotten to that. We haven't actually gotten to that. It appears we have because we fight out in the context of pieces of legislation, either in the state legislature or things that's happening in our city or county. But the conversation hasn't been shaped for the new world that we're living in. We don't have one. And therefore, I think for you, working with young people, that's the thing that's most concerning to me is that there's not a, my future as a child and a young woman coming into the world was, there was a yes. There was a world of a yes. I too taught school. I lived and worked on the Navajo and Hopi reservations for several years. And I had not fully understood what it would be like before that to work with children who woke up with a stop signs, you know, like a half an inch from their nose every day and how that defined them in ways that were heartbreaking. And now I'm seeing that's the way it feels to a lot of young people in the world today, that when this world is unraveling. And I, I've come to see that it's your job and mine to create the yes, that there's a whole new world waiting for us. We just have to come together and actually have the courage to create it and the imagination and the belief that we can. A lot of data says we can There is, and it's not wrong to be worried or fearful that there's not a big wide open yes out there. But that, we were the ones that created this 
and we can create something else. We can have a new story, which is why we need to work together in a multi-generational way, really a transformative vision. Not change like, I need to get a climate bill passed, or we need to win this election, because then it swings and swings and these arcs of yes, no, you win, we lose. We, we actually have to have a whole new story because that it needs to be transformative to the whole of society. Humans' belief of superiority and domination over everything, which is just deeply fallacious, like so fundamentally inaccurate. And the place where your generation and mine can meet is in knowing the falseness of that story and that it, it's run its course. It, it isn't, it's never been true, but now there's no shred of evidence to back it up. And until we craft that new story together, we're just wandering into one place or another without anything to hold us. Like, where are we going? What we want to live in, the question you were framing is, what made me think of it, you know, for the young people you recruit at New Era. Where do we want to be? Not just what are we opposed to. You've really hit the nail on the head of what I've been trying to articulate as well as what's really challenging for young people in this election in particular is that I don't know if you've read George Lakoff's book, Don't Think of an Elephant, but the, you know, the whole idea is if when you say we're not that, you're just reinforcing the opposition's narrative, right? And so I feel like young people hear that all the time. Oh, well, we're not that, we're not this, we're not X, Y, and Z, but they actually aren't hearing what you stand for and what you believe in and what's the positive vision of the world that you're putting out there. And I think something that I've really been feeling like is missing in our public narrative right now, whether it's about COVID, whether it's about the election, whether it's about racial justice, is really having leadership come in and articulate that kind of vision for the world that I believe in, that names what is um, flawed about our current system, but sets something um, positive and forward. I mean, that's what Martin Luther King Jr. did so well, was articulate this shared vision. And that's how you mass mobilize people, right? And I think that regardless of what happens in 2021, we're going to have to be in a state of reimagining as a country. We have to reimagine our relationship to one another, our relationship to the environment and to the world and to other living beings. We have to reimagine our socioeconomic system, our healthcare system, like all of these systems. And I think that young people throughout history have always played this role of being imaginative and futuristic and um, seeing new possibilities. And yet I also see that the role that elders play in our society as sharing wisdom and having a bit more stability in their lives. And those actually are really important value sets that both need to come together in order to move us forward. I gravitated to law school because I felt like I wanted more tools to drive good policy. And it wasn't a mistake. I've loved having a law degree, but I've never chosen to use it as a traditional lawyer. Never was interesting to me because I was interested in big policy initiatives, not specific case law, even though both are critically important. But what I think where we come together is the other thing I've needed, what really woke me up was just listening 
sometimes listening and finding myself not even able to hear the people I respected. Not that I didn't continue to respect them and have affection, but it was like, you're talking in a way that I know is not reaching me completely. Therefore, I know it's not reaching a lot of people who aren't already with you. And then beyond that, I started studying social science. Lakoff was really good at helping us diagnose what we shouldn't do, but there's still no one that I have found who is actively trying to help us create those new stories. It's really interesting. The other side creates new stories out of whole cloth all the time. And we, we muddle around in that space and don't get serious about it. In fact, two other things I've done besides working with Al and creating the Climate Reality Project was I did a, in 16, I created an organization called On Common Ground because I was trying to see if I could create a linkage between a love of place, as in all federal lands belong to all of us, whether it's Rainbow Bridge House, uh, Gettysburg, or national parks or wilderness. I mean, the whole of what we own together as part of our identity, which means as part of our citizenship. So we haven't done anything to create affinity between us. What is the common space between every American that makes us American, global citizens as well? And, and I think the only thing we really have in common are these jointly held places that are part of our history and identity. And no one really disagrees with that, but we've never been able to get people to dive in under and create some stories out of that. I'd love to talk to you about that at another time because a new era would be a great place to do some of that work. And now I'm creating a global biodiversity narrative because the reality is even inside our world of hardworking activists, we're still not understanding the scope of the threat. This is New Yorker. It's not a cartoon, but it's a drawing. I'm gonna to have to use my fingers and our poor listeners are gonna go, this woman is weird. Um, it's just a drawing and it's a series of waves and each wave gets bigger, like a breaking wave, breaking this way and then another one, each one gets bigger. And the first one is uh, COVID. And there's a little teeny tiny city in the corner of the drawing. And in it, these words are coming out. If you just wash your hands, everything will be okay. Then after COVID comes another bigger wave called the recession, and that's a global recession. And then after that comes a bigger wave called climate. And after, actually before climate comes systemic racism. Then up comes climate, it's bigger. And then behind that comes biodiversity, the biggest wave of all. That will just roll over. And our communities haven't even been able to tell that story yet much less wake up other people who aren't already in our stories with us. So we really need each other. The other thing that I've been doing is I read a lot of social science. I'm trying to understand how human behavior it manifests through all time, not today, not 10 years ago, but more like thousands of years ago and today. And the neural pathways that get worn in the brain, the older you get, the pathways get deeper because you get very certain about things. And what's wonderful about young people, and you spoke of it a couple of times, is the sense of possibility and openness. But there are lessons learned from those pathways, and yet they are restrictive because the openness is not the same. Well, that's just the way it's been. 
you can hear people saying this. And you'll be, well, no, it doesn't have to be that way. Well, actually, right there is where we meet and join the lessons learned with the need for new lessons, a whole new way. That is a that has been the way, say someone young to someone older, and that's accurate. But it can't be that way anymore. It doesn't work. It hasn't been working. So how do we create new pathways? We youth saying to us, we need you, and we saying to youth, we need you, in service to these large a larger story, because there's nothing that's keeping anyone in their younger years from believing that's possible. There are a lot of facts right now, but people are fighting against those facts. They could just stop. Young people just say, you know what? You guys have really messed this up and I'm just gonna go off and do what I wanna do. And instead people are investing in a future they're uncertain about. And what breaks my heart is that we haven't come together yet to craft that new future so that all the work we're doing is headed someplace that we can identify together instead of just a win here or a win there or a loss here and a loss there because they won't get us there. They will be important, every one of them, but they aren't going to move us to that new place that we really need to get to. Yeah, yeah. Maggie, we should start a book club because I also love reading about social science. Uh, oh, good. I don't find very many people. Yeah. I see them and they furrow their brow and look at me like, okay, what's that? My mom told me that I need to read more fiction. A balance because your own imagination. (laughs) Yes. Your brain brain needs fuel from a lot of different sources. Absolutely. Uh, You're fueling it up uh, as I am in certain ways, but she's also right. (laughs) Poetry because poetry, you know, or actually just paint or go for a walk. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. I wonder what you think, Maggie, because I think a lot of what you're speaking to. So I love hearing about biodiversity. My brother and my sister-in-law are both marine ecologists. My brother studies biodiversity in marshlands, saltwater marshes. On oh, the such Coast. important places. Oh, great place. Yes. yes. Our protective barrier, saltwater marshes. And we like to put hotels on. Yes, exactly. Exactly. I grew up in Florida, so we've seen lots of destruction of our natural ecology and it's a protective barrier against hurricanes and other natural disasters. Anyway, you know all of this already, but I always think about it because there's so much to learn about our connection with nature that we should be emulating in our societies. But like the big piece of biodiversity that I've learned from him is that one, you need multiple people playing multiple roles to create a biodiverse and healthy ecosystem that allows you to be resilient towards disasters and plagues, et cetera, right? And secondly, you need to understand how interconnected everything is. And I think those are lessons that we are in danger of losing at the societal level, right? I think, you know, I just finished reading Sapiens, actually, and which both gave me a lot of faith in how, like, temporal everything is and how actually we are able to shift the way our society is structured because it's actually pretty futile how we got here in the first place. But I think that the ways in which our society is so focused on efficiency, productivity, 
individualism, competition, all of these ideologies that have kind of taken over in the modern era, post-industrial revolution, are not only destroying our own in feelings of interconnectedness to one another as humans, but also with our environments. And I spend a lot of time thinking it's so ingrained into American culture and society, like, can we actually shift the kind of values that we use to make decisions? Because that's what I saw in the schooling system. The reason why my students were really having a hard time in school was because our schooling system was built to reinforce this capitalist system that was highly inequitable, highly unequal, focused on productivity there was no sense of diversity in schools because everyone was a cog in a machine built to do a certain thing instead of valuing people for their diverse interests and strengths. If I had a student who was a beautiful artist but wasn't reading at grade level, his skills were devalued, right? Because what, you know, what is that going to get us in terms of productivity in our economy? And it really destroyed the like innate diversity that we have as human beings that we all play this separate role. And I, anyway, I think sometimes on my worst days, I get really just downtrodden that that's something that we can even change. But I'm wondering what you think. I know, I know we can. Now, are we going to do it in time? Mm, that's another question. Um, I think we're moving in that direction already because I work at the global level now. Once you thrust yourself, once you, once I realized I couldn't, I had some clients I was helping with an organization called Nature Needs Half, which was created along with Half Earth. Another one, E.O. Wilson created Half Earth and a bunch of people created Nature Needs. And the notion that we can't actually continue to live as any species alive, any form of life you can imagine on this planet, unless we actually set aside some very big chunks of lands and waters to let those natural systems connect to each other and keep life alive. And they were trying to get me to help them understand why just putting videos up on a channel of beautiful things, you know, sort of big, beautiful species, plants or animals. And I thought I'd kept looking. I couldn't find anything. So I started this project. And in doing that, I've stepped back onto a global stage, which I used to work on with Conant Reality. And there's so much happening around the world that is not as stuck as we are. We're very stuck. We haven't been this stuck for a lot of our history. We've been stuck, but this is a kind of a level, a profound kind of moment in the United States and in North America, although Canada's doing much better than we are. But there's a huge amount of conversation around the globe about a new relationship with nature. It's coming out daily. And in fact, the European Union didn't just take a look at their Paris Accord commitments. They came out with whole new commitments, even though they hadn't met those for 2030 and don't know quite how they're going to. They made a whole new set of commitments to broaden them and include protecting places, waters, and lands that they had never even thought of in the context of climate. Well, that is a big deal. In addition to that, just this last week, Gavin Newsom announced that a third of the state of California was going to be set aside for natural protection of lands and waters. And so we've already started moving. In both of those cases, they're in the world of policy because those leaders have like, whoa, we've hit a, maybe the biggest wall of all. We've got to make changes, but we're still not having a conversation around the world about it. And that is my mission. Um, 
to jumpstart that conversation because there's enough of it going on and particularly COVID has opened the doors in ways that we haven't seen in a long time. This Cornell, you know, ornithology labs have almost 400,000 more members than they've ever had them on bird watching. I mean, it's just a glorious thing actually. So we are beginning. And so you just, we have to take heart with that. And because Nicole, what I truly believe is that awe is a renewable resource. Profound awe is most predictably found in nature. Awe can move us out of a stuck place. It allows us to listen differently, to perceive differently, and people like feeling it. It's not something to separate yourself from. So I'm sitting here with five windows, looking out, sad that my maple tree has less than half the leaves it had on it before those winds last night, red and you know, the flat irons, it's, um, sometimes I just turn off my computer and just let it soak into me and give, it gives me a lot of energy. So I, I don't really have any doubt that we can do it. I think we are primarily connected to nature in ways like we're primarily connected to our parents and our families, even when we don't like them, we're of them. And that those primal connections have to be reinforced. And we have to begin telling stories out of that space, not out of the space of winning and losing. A way of ordering the world, but it's ordered us into boxes that don't have life in them. Something that I've been trying to grapple with and think about is how do we feel that connection to nature and to our families? And then how do we extend that to others? And how do we, I've been kind of obsessed with this idea of neighborly love, right? Like we understand at the neighborhood level, what it means for us all to pitch in and what it means to be a good neighbor and how we support one another in a community. And then how do we extend that like beyond ourselves? And how do we extend that, especially to people who look different from us or identify different than us. And well, I grew up in Florida. I went to school in North Carolina. And then I moved out here in 2012. I had never spent a ton of time outdoors. But my husband, I met him here. He's from Montana. And he kind of exposed me to the outdoors and the wilderness. And I fell in love and didn't realize how much I needed that for my soul, especially when I was a first-year teacher and, like, running around with my hair on fire all the time. Um, is that the like nature and being in awe of nature kept me so grounded. But it's interesting because all growing up, I definitely felt like an activist my whole life, but I never really latched onto the climate movement as a young person because I was so focused on racial justice. I grew up in a very racially diverse um, neighborhood from a very young age, just knew that racial justice was like what I wanted to dedicate my life to. And Um, Because of this feeling of being connected and the sense of fairness that young people have when something is or is not fair, it's like really palpable. And it's only recently that I've seen that the climate movement is a racial justice movement. And I don't think it was really framed for me in that way because I think the climate movement has this 
brand of being, you know, crunchy granola, white, you know, white liberal arts students. They wear chacos. They've got, they play hacky stack sack in the quad. And it's only recently I kind of feel dumb about it, honestly, that I never really understood that environmental racism is a thing and that climate justice is a thing. And I wonder what you think about the ways in which the movement has and has not adequately addressed the racial justice element, because any way that we want to achieve this like shared vision or achieve greater biodiversity or connectedness with our with ourselves and our environments has to be reimagined in a way that puts racial justice at the center. Well, I don't think they're separate. I think man's dominion over nature and man, humans' notion of superiority over other, whether other is nature or other are human beings, story. And they're breaking simultaneously. It's just falling apart. So the transformative change and transformation sounds like a final word. I don't like using transformation because it's transforming is a constant process. It's like, you know so much, and then you realize, well, yeah, but I didn't really see that before. I mean, I worked in the environmental movement for a very long time, very happily, working legislative battles on a million different topics. We were supplanting and using urgency as an excuse for all of our strategies, as opposed to wisdom or learning, not pulling back. So even the environmental movement, at the core were the values your brother and sister we're talking about, which is Rachel Carson, interconnectedness, that all life is dependent upon each other itself. The mycelial, the, you know, the layer underneath the earth, it's like the biggest internet of all time, connecting all life. And there's so much that's alive on this planet we haven't even identified as alive. Rocks are not inanimate. They are alive, and there's data to prove that. Do we know that? Do people know? Do I sense it in my soul? course I do but I never felt like it was important to take it further than that so there's just a whole world of connectedness that we've pushed aside in order to move legislative goals all of which were good things but we lost the storyline of why to do it and it's cost us terribly the same is true around racial justice issues because we get so myopic people in the climate movement I've been in it for a long long time People in the climate movement were not unaware of the racial justice implications, but we just have to get this emissions reduction plan done. We, we just have to get that done. If we get that done, we'll deal with this other stuff. And it hasn't been done in 45 years. So these blinders, we just put, we just got to get this one thing done and this one thing done. But that isn't the way the world works. It's all connected. So by doing that, we've actually unintentionally, completely unintentionally hurt our own efforts by not expanding and expanding that vision to understand that those people who are most affected not only deserve the solutions are focused on fixing that, but they're, the, they're at the front of the storyline because it's already visceral for them that we have to recognize that in many ways we're trying to move white people. People of color are far more connected to these truths than many who are white are. And because of the white dominance, that's the reason racial justice has to be deeply involved, deeply at the heart of everything we do. They're not separate. They've never been separate. 
And when this whole stuff started during the pandemic and Black Lives Matter just has grown and grown and grown, it's like, well, of course, it is so past time. And that same thing of losing our connectedness to each other and to the living world around us, it, it's all breaking all at the same time. So we don't get to choose to pick, to work on this or this or this. We can, once we make the, we create the whole story and picture, you can't do everything. I can't, you can't, no one can. But I can know that what I'm working on is a part of a bigger picture, not in this box, so that I've blocked everything else off, but that I'm actually helping the whole by giving myself and my time, my passion, my interests, whatever I can give to this. I'm not just helping this. I'm making a difference to the bigger whole. And that's, I think, people desperately need right now, that sense that whatever they choose to give of themselves, it is part of something bigger than just the actions. I, you know, I can get pretty sad and scared and feeling, oh, we've really bought it. But then I think about what happened when we have big disasters around the world and the entire world responds. We do have it in us. We do have empathy. We do have awe. We have access to awe. We have access to empathy. We're starving them, but they're there. And the need for our work the work you do, the work I do, the work of all the people that we know, we need to actually be fostering those emotions more than competition, as you pointed out, more than winning at all costs. Without empathy and without all, winning really isn't winning. One of the reasons why I do have hope is because when I was a kindergarten teacher, I saw that Young people are innately curious and kind and empathetic. I studied moral development of children in grad school and babies, when they hear another baby cry in the hospital, they'll start crying themselves because they actually don't have an understanding that they are separate from that other baby at that point. Um, wow. Which to me was just like the most beautiful concept because, and and I saw that with kindergartners too, the way that they when they see one of their friends in pain, like they just feel that with their friends. And so it really became clear to me when I was studying education that what we're actually doing in schools and in society is that we're actively unlearning those innate habits that we have to be connected to one another. And I think and part of that is because of like in the agricultural revolution, we started, that was the first time we started to see ourselves as separate from the land that we could like manipulate plants, plants and animals to our needs. And then we started to think that way about other humans. When I think about, you know, we learned that we could also unlearn it. It makes me think about, yeah. okay, what is the change that we might want to build towards? And I think for me, the fundamental principle that we need to reorient ourselves around when we're thinking about systems change is interdependence, yeah. interdependence with other living beings as well as with other humans and getting away from this idea that productivity and efficiency just for productivity and efficiency's sake is what's going to bring us joy and happiness and allow us to flourish. But actually it's going to be like our interdependence towards one another and 
strengthening those connections. And I think that is like prevalent in our socioeconomic system, our healthcare system, criminal justice system, education, like you name it, that principle of interdependence, I think is what is needed when we're reimagining our systems. I think you've nailed it. (laughs) I mean, if we don't recognize that deeply fundamental primal truth about life, that's about all life, not just human life. That is the new story. You've hit right at the heart of the new story. That we, not just interdependence, but curiosity. Like, wow, it's, the world is really not just exactly what I thought it was. It's quite lovely and different and kind of very exciting. And it fosters awe, it fosters respect, and it comes also with other people. Like we're often criticized on our side of the aisle, if you will, about you know having a rally or a gathering and we have to have this kind of person and this kind of person and this kind of person. And I think part of the challenge we have that we could work on right away is how we frame when we gather, why we have to have all those voices. It's not about dotting I's and crossing T's. It's because those voices tell different stories of the same truth. And it's more accurate and more compelling when you hear all the threats. Without them, it's a, it's a fraction of the story. And the notion that interdependence extends to those things we don't even understand yet. And that our so-called superiority is absurd. Yes. Oh, my gosh. And that, that hubris is what often prevents us from, like, we need humility to move forward. And I think... People have it, but often they view humility as a weakness. Yeah. One of it being, I mean, I was giving a talk to a wonderful group not too long ago, and I said, because the people that were gathering were very deep into the work of global biodiversity. And some of them have been doing extraordinary work for a very long time. And some were young and doing extraordinary work just for a shorter period of time, right? And I remember standing there that night thinking about what I was going to say. I had it all planned, ditched it. When I saw them all, I thought, you know, this is that moment when I can see that power and vulnerability, they are one and the same. Our vulnerability is our power. Our power is our vulnerability. And we have never, we, we are not teaching that to ourselves. We are not owning that truth. And it is, it, it is so liberating to understand that at my weakest moments, I am at my strongest. It's a delight to me. I can't wait to work together. <laughs> no. I know, I know one of the questions we wanted to, think about is like how do we foster more intergenerational relationships and so one I want you to be my new best friend and we have to start a nerdy book club together but also because I think that the more opportunities for fostering connections across generations leads to this understanding that actually we are in service of a shared vision. I try and combat this narrative all the time that you hear amongst young people towards older generations about, oh, well, you left these problems for us. Like you created these problems, now they're ours to solve. Or from older generations to younger generations saying, well, you're naive and you're not thinking pragmatically and you just don't understand the world yet. And I think you're just talking over each other instead of having a conversation about what's the actual shared vision of the world we wanna live in. 
we're perfectly aligned. Isn't that sweet? Ever <laughs> <laughs> do that thing in school, pinky swear? Did that still happen? Yes, yes. I think so. <laughs> pinky swear that uh, we'll find a way to work together, or at least have a nerdy work club. Yes, yes, absolutely, absolutely. And thanks, Ashley, for bringing us together. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Climate Bridges podcast. Big thanks to Nicole and Maggie for participating in the conversation and for sharing their insights into how generations can better work together to achieve shared goals, particularly during these very tumultuous times. Who else wants to join their nerdy book club? As we wind down these last few weeks and days leading into the election, the Alliance Center and I would like to ask you to please make sure you vote. This election, more than any other in recent history, will determine the future of our great country. You can make a difference. You can make our country better. Use your vote as your voice. This episode was produced by the Alliance Center and edited by Progress Now Colorado.